Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We are in the Upper Room Discourse, chapter 13 through 17, all taking place on Thursday night of the Passion Week. Five full, rich chapters of this one night. We just left the Upper Room, chapter 14, verse 31. Get up from where they were. Let us go from here, the upper room. They just left the upper room. And Jesus and his disciples, minus Judas, who is coming back to the upper room as Jesus is speaking. um, Jesus and his disciples are walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. The upper room is located on the southern side of the Temple Mount, probably the southwestern side of the Temple Mount. And the Garden of Gethsemane is on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. You have to go... Uh, down a little ravine, uh, the Kidron Valley, and up to the other side where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So they're going to walk around the southern side of the Temple Mount, they're going to walk around the eastern side of the Temple Mount, and then they're going to go down into the Kidron Valley, then over to the Garden of Gethsemane. As they walked by, there was a path that was directly next to the Temple Mount, and Josephus tells us that on the Temple Mount, there were uh, vines, there were grapevines that were um, growing on the outside of the Temple Mount. Specifically, they would even um, put golden uh, figures of, of grapevines and olive branches and things like that uh, to celebrate Passover. So as they're walking by a bunch of vines and uh, they're seeing these grapes growing on the vines... Jesus is going to stop. And whether he stops or whether he actually keeps walking, but talking as he's walking, as they're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't know. My guess is that they're walking and talking together. But as they're working their way over to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says these words in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. All these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Father, I pray that you would guide us this morning. These are such rich words, and God, I pray that we would see them clearly, 
That we would not be like the Pharisees who, while seeing, they do not see, or while hearing, they do not hear. God, these are familiar words to us, and it would be easy to think that we know everything, and perhaps we know much. But God, I pray that we would be humbled by your word and realize that for as much as we might know in our heads, we have much that we still have to live out with our lives. So God, teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help. This is a supernatural book. This is a spiritual book and fleshly eyes cannot understand spiritual things. So, Spirit, be our guide. Give us the gift of illumination this morning so that while seeing, we see and are transformed into the likeness of our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus, as he has been doing all along in this upper room discourse, is preparing his disciples. He's making sure they are ready and they are equipped. He is so them-focused when He is only hours away from being murdered on a cross. He's concerned about them. His love and his grace just always astounds me as I study these verses. And so as he is them focused, he is trying to speak to them specifically in these next two chapters, chapter 15 and 16, about his relationship, uh, their relationship with himself, their relationship with one another, their relationship with the world and their relationship with the Holy Spirit. We're going to go through those four aspects as we study chapter 15 and 16. But here, in verses 1 through 11, really just 1 through 8, we're going to look at 1 through 11 as a whole, but verses 1 through 8, Jesus is clearly teaching a main lesson of the unity that the disciples can have with Jesus. Remember, Jesus has told them, I'm leaving, but here he says, you can still remain with me. I will be with you and you can remain in me, even though I'm going to leave you. There is a parable here of sorts. It's an extended metaphor. It's an illustration that Jesus gives of a vine, of branches, and a vine dresser. And the themes in this passage are so clear. And this is what I want to do this morning. We're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. Normally, we would just start in verse 1 and dive deep and start making our way through. And what I want to do, since... Uh, We are going to go through this text this morning, and then we're going to take a break from John for three months, and then we're going to come back in September. So what I want to do is I want to set the stage for where we will be in September by just doing an overview of these 11 verses. Um, We're going to look at the themes of these verses, which are very, very clear. And as we look at the themes, hopefully it will whet your appetite to going deeper. In fact, each of the main points that we're going to go through this morning are going to be individual standalone sermons as we enter into September. So it's a little bit different, but Lord willing, as we go through these verses and these themes in these verses, the Holy Spirit would be pleased to point us to Christ and change our affections and fix our eyes on Jesus The themes are clear here in these verses. If you just look at the words, bearing fruit is referred to five times in these verses, six if you include an implication, and the word abide is used ten times in ten verses. So these verses are all about branches that bear fruit or don't bear fruit and what it looks like to abide. And so that's exactly how we're going to take it this morning. We're going to look at these three themes. We're going to look at fruitless branches that are cut off, We're going to look at fruitful branches that are pruned, and we're going to look at the nature of what it means to abide in the vine as a whole. Fruitless branches that are cut off, fruitful branches that are pruned, 
and what the nature of abiding in the vine truly is. So let's start with the first point. Fruitless branches that are cut off. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse six tells us that if this branch is not abiding and therefore not bearing fruit, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and is gathered together and cast into a fire and is burned. Who are these branches? In this metaphor, in this extended metaphor, Jesus clearly is the true vine. His father, as he explicitly says in verse one, is the vine dresser. But we have these branches There are some branches that bear fruit that are pruned, but there are some branches that Jesus says, verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Who are these in me branches that are cut off and thrown away? Again, we're going to dive into this in depth in September. But already we know based on in me branches that don't bear fruit, that are cut off, that are burned, that are destroyed. And in me branches that bear fruit, that are pruned. We know that branches, we've got vine is Jesus, vine dresses is the Father. Branches are professing believers. Some are true believers, some are not true believers. Branches are professing believers. Who is it that is in Christ but is not saved? Well, if we were just to parachute into John chapter 15 and have no context whatsoever, we could come up with some pretty wacky theology from this verse. But we've gone through John. We've meticulously seen John's main themes. So we know what this verse is a reference to. John has taught us all the way from chapter 2 that there are those who believe in Jesus yet are not saved. There are those who are unsaved believers. There are those who are non-believing believers. Let me just remind you of some passages. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not, the, the translation is entrusting himself to them, but it's literally the same Greek word, believing their belief. Jesus didn't believe in their belief in him. They said, oh, we believe you're the Messiah. We believe you're the Savior. We believe you're the Son of God. And he said, I know that you think you believe, but it's not saving faith. John chapter 6, verse 66. As a result of Jesus' teachings that were very hard words to stomach, many of his disciples, so these are people that are referred to as believers and disciples, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So disciples of Jesus withdrew and Stopped walking with him. So you can have somebody who believes in Jesus that isn't saved. You can have somebody who is a disciple of Jesus but isn't saved. John chapter 8, verses 30 through 31. As he spoke these things, many people came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to the Jews who did believe in him, If you continue in my words, then you are truly my disciples, true discipleship. Yeah, you, you say you believe, but it's going to be proven whether you truly believe by what follows, by your actions. Back in John 15, verse 8, this is exactly what Jesus says. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There are believing unbelievers. I think this is right off of the heels of the disciples question about Judas. Somebody's going to betray Jesus? How does that work? Judas was with us for the three and a half years, just like everybody else. He looked like everybody else. He acted like everybody else. 
And so Jesus is answering that question by saying, yes, he was in me, quote unquote. He followed me. He was my disciple. He believed in me. But because he did not bear fruit, namely because he was not truly abiding in me, he has been cut off. He has been cut off. There are those who remain, who abide in in the vine, and there are those who are cut off from the vine. Some people would say, again, if you just jump right into this verse, some people would say, well, this means that a believer can lose their salvation. This means that a believer can lose their salvation. You are in Christ and, and you stop producing works and so you're cut off. You were once saved, but now you are no longer saved. Again, a student of the Gospel of John knows very clearly, John chapter 6, I will lose none of them. The ones that the Father give to me, I will never lose one of them. So if you are saved, I'm not losing you. He will hold me fast. And John 10, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father and I are greater than all of these things. They're greater than even our own sin. So if you're truly saved, you cannot be cut off from Christ and thrown into judgment. That's not what this passage is saying. This this passage is saying that there are those who claim to be believers. They might even look like they're believers. They might even do all the believer Christian things. And yet on that last day, they will find out that they are not truly saved. Some might say that, okay, this passage, it's not talking about losing your salvation because the Gospel of John clearly teaches that you can't lose your salvation. So maybe this passage is just talking about the works of a believer. A branch in Christ, his works are taken and thrown into the fire and burned up. So this is that idea of a carnal Christian, that you can come to Christ and follow Jesus and nothing really changes in your life. You're still in Christ, but you you do not truly repent. You do not truly surrender. You do not truly turn to Jesus. Well, verse 6 says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. Not his works. The person is thrown away. This isn't about a Christian's bad works being burnt up. This is about a non-believer being exposed for who he truly is. An imposter trying to, to play the game of Christianity with no real change inside that's bearing fruit. Think of the analogy here. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're attached to me as branches that are bearing fruit. Uh, there are those that... Uh, let's say that this is an apple tree. There are those that are branches bearing apples that you can clearly see. We've got an apple tree. We've got branches that have apples on them. This is an apple tree. And therefore, these branches are a part of this tree because it's an apple tree. Jesus says there will be those who have lemons on the end of their branches and they will try and duct tape themselves onto the tree and say, oh, we're a part of the tree, too. We're producing fruit. See our fruit. See our good works. Remember Matthew 7 on the last day. Lord, Lord, we did all of these things in your name. We prophesied. We cast out demons. Look at what we did. See our fruit. It's a lemon. I'm a fruit bearing branch. And God will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You just tried to duct tape yourself onto me. Nothing ever changed. You had no life. And you produced fruit that was not of me. There's a a key lesson to be learned here. There is an ability to produce fruit that is not good fruit, but sometimes looks like it. We've talked about Judas before. I think every Jewish mother would have said, please let my daughter marry Judas. He is just the best, most upstanding man. I just want my daughter to marry Judas. Even in the upper room, 
one of you will betray me. Nobody in the upper room goes, you know what? I know who it is. It's Judas. I mean, do you see the way he looks and the way he talks and the way he acts? It's clearly him. Everybody's saying, wait, is it me? Maybe it's me. Nobody points the finger. Is it me? But I really know it's Judas. Judas produced fruit, and it looked like good fruit. But it was fruit that he produced himself, not fruit coming from the vine. Matthew chapter 7 says that those on the last day that point to their good works as an effort to get to heaven, God will say, I never knew you, and he will cut you away. These branches are not bearing fruit. They're taking all the nutrients from the other branches. They must be removed or the whole vine suffers. They're attached, but there's no fruit because there's no life flowing through them. They're imposters. And so, Jesus says, there are fruitless branches who will be cut away. God the Father cuts away the lifeless. But it doesn't end there. Number two, he cultivates the living. So he cuts away the lifeless, but he cultivates the living. This is fruitful branches that are pruned. So we have our fruitless branches that are cut off and destroyed. Number two, we have fruitful branches that are pruned. So God the Father, as the vine dresser, destroys and disciplines. Either you are cut off or cut back. Those are your only two options. Bearing fruit, as we said earlier, is referred to five times in this passage. Six if you include an implication. So verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it. He cuts it back so that it can bear more fruit. So the question we have to stop and ask is, what is fruit? What is fruit? Fruit here is the identifier that we belong to Jesus. It's evidence that we are belonging in the vine. Verse 2, to be a true Christian is to bear fruit. If there is no fruit, there is no genuine belief. So we have to ask the question, what is true fruit? We, we have Judas who can produce fruit, but it's bad fruit. But nobody knew that it was bad fruit. I want to make sure I'm not self-deceived. How you define fruit matters. If you define fruit as just moral religiosity, you'll just be a Pharisee. I just need to do more good things. Stop doing bad things. You'll become a whitewashed tomb. No life on the inside, just duct taping a branch to a tree and saying, look, I have fruit. How does Jesus define fruit? Well, simply, he would say the greatest commandment is love God and love people. So Jesus would define fruit as, are you loving others because the love of God is flowing through you? You love God, therefore the byproduct is you love people. Or Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the spirit, it's singular because they all stem from the same place. If you lack patience, for instance, then you're probably not loving. If you lack love, for instance, then you probably don't have much joy. If you lack kindness, then you're probably struggling with being good to others. They all grow symmetrically. So how could we define fruit here? Fruit is righteous attitudes, desires, and affections, righteous virtues and behaviors. They are works that point to the reality of our profession that the Holy Spirit is inside of us producing new life. The Holy Spirit is inside of us producing new life. So this is new affections. This is new desires. This is new attitudes. And they produce new actions. 
new virtues, new works. It's the evidence. Fruit is the evidence that something's going on inside. This is Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God's made those works for us to walk in. Once we are attached to Jesus, we start producing those good works. We are known by our fruit. Remember John 13, verse 35. Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So they will know that you are truly saved if they see the byproduct of love, Christ-like love flowing through you to others. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Jesus says, You can tell who a person is by their fruit. A tree is known by their fruit. Likewise, you can tell somebody if they say, oh, I am an apple tree, but they're producing lemons, they're self-deceived. They're not truly an apple tree. Somebody says, oh, I love Jesus, but they aren't producing the works that a Christian produces, biblically speaking. Then we know that their profession is in vain. So if you are bearing fruit, what does God do? Remember, he either cuts off or cuts back. He cuts off branches that are fruitless and he cuts back fruitful branches. Verse 2, he prunes them. He prunes them. Who's the he? I love this. Mark this down. Verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And the vine dresser is the one that's pruning. So the father is the one who is pruning. God does not delegate the difficult, specific meticulous task of pruning your soul to anyone else. No angel does that work. No believer does that work. God the Father says, I'm going to do that work. It's hard. It's painful. It's difficult. I'm going to be the one to do it. He prunes himself. He prunes us himself. What does he use to prune us? What does he use to prune us? Trouble obviously prunes us. Trials, difficulties. We can say clearly vine dressers do more than just cut things back, right? They protect, they water, they take. So it's not that God's just cutting away, just mean. That's not what's happening here. But if we're honest with ourselves, what does God normally use to bring us to a place of greater dependency upon Jesus? This whole thing is stick yourself onto the vine and know that apart from the vine, you can't do anything. So what does God typically use in our lives To make us see, I need more of him. In my many years of pastoral ministry, I have never had one person answer that question by saying, it's the happy days. It's the sunny days of life that make me think I need God more. No, it's the sunny days of life that make me think I'm self-sufficient and I don't need God. And so God comes along and prunes us. Remember, you're dependent upon me. You need me. This is Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's not fun in the moment. And I love that the author of Hebrews says that. This does not seem like a joyous thing in the moment. It's not happy to go through this pruning. But we have the promise that it brings fruit. It brings fruit. So he prunes through conflict. He prunes through confrontation. He prunes through trials. He prunes through troubles. But if, you, if you're reading this passage, maybe, maybe you've already seen that I'm not being entirely accurate here. Because this passage explicitly tells us what God uses to prune us. I've just said troubles, trials, conflict. Yes, God uses those things. 
But what does this verse explicitly say is used to prune us? Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. That word clean in the Greek is the exact same word as prunes in verse 2. So you've already been pruned. Why? How? Because of the word. So the word of God is that which prunes us. Ultimately, it's not conflict, confrontation, trials and troubles that prune us. Ultimately, it's the word. You cannot be pruned apart from the word of God. I think, by the way, side note, I think this is one of the reasons why we don't learn what we're supposed to learn in trials. We go through trouble, we go through suffering, we go, okay, I'm learning something. And we come out and we go, what did I learn? That was all wasted. That was all worthless. I didn't learn anything. Why? Because you weren't connected to the tool that God uses to teach you and to prune you in those moments. The word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So here's how pruning works. The trouble and the trial and the suffering and the conflict and the chaos come and we respond wrongly inside of it. And the word of God convicts us and changes us. The trouble is just God's means of showing us we need to be dependent upon the word. Charles Spurgeon says it so well. It is the word that prunes the Christian. It's the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit eventually and effectively cleanses the Christian. Affliction, this is the trouble, the trials, the conflicts. Affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the knife, but the knife itself is the word. Affliction is the dresser that removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the knife can get at it. So it's affliction that makes us ready for the knife, and the word of God is that knife that does the pruning. So yes, trouble and trial and conflict and confrontation and all of those different things are used by God to prune us, but it's ultimately the word of God that prunes our thoughts, our attitudes, our intentions, our desires, our affections, and our works as we respond wrongly, sinfully, incorrectly in those trials. So we have fruitless branches that God cuts away and destroys. We have fruitful branches that God is going to prune by the word of God through trouble, through trial, through conflict. And number three, the third theme that we have in these verses is abiding in the vine. Again, the word abide used ten times in ten verses. Obviously, this word is important. This is the theme of these verses. What does abide mean? The the Greek word literally means to take up residence, to dwell, to move into, to remain. It's the opposite of just temporarily living in a hotel. But here again, we have to pause because we can easily move into pharisaical legalism. We can easily move into, okay, God's given me a command. I need to remain in him. I need to abide in him. And I'm failing and self-condemnation. And here we go again. And I'm a failure. And we can so quickly move to give me a command. Let me live it out. I'll do it. That's why we need verse 3. We need verse 3. And again, Lord willing, when we get to the fall, we're going to spend time on each of these verses drilling deep into them. And we'll see the flow of 
Jesus' words. Jesus wants us to hear the imperative of verse 4, abide in me. You need to do that. That's a command. But he wants us to hear that imperative as a Christian imperative, not as a pharisaical legalistic imperative. And that's why verse 3 has to come before verse 4. Verse 3 says, you are already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. So I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. If you don't bear fruit, he's going to cut you off. If you bear fruit, you are proving to be in me and you'll be pruned. And guess what, disciples? You have already been pruned. Meaning what? You're already saved. You are abiding in me. And so I'm going to command you to keep doing that. Abide in me. The Father prunes every fruitful branch. You are already pruned. Therefore, you're fruitful. You're faithful. By the way, this is staggering to me because in just a few hours, Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. And the rest of the disciples are going to flee for their lives. They're going to scatter. They're going to leave him. And yet Jesus says, you're clean. How gracious is our Savior? How, how ungracious are we with others? Oh, you messed up. You're struggling. Maybe you're not even saved. You've just got problems. Jesus goes, yeah, I, I promise you, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I promise you, disciples, you're going to run away. You're not going to believe my words. You don't believe that I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to tell you to go ahead to Galilee. You're not going to do that. But you're saved. How gracious is our Savior? There's a parallel here. In chapter 13, verse 10, you remember the whole foot washing. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Peter says, nope, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. You're not saved if I don't get to wash your feet. And Peter goes, okay then, wash my whole body. If this is, you're saved when I wash your feet, then wash my whole body. And Jesus says, you're already clean. Somebody who is already clean does not need to be washed thoroughly again. They just need the dirty parts to be cleansed. You don't need to have a whole bath again, just your feet. So, Peter, if you don't allow me, if you're not coming to me to wash your feet, if you're not saying, I've got sin that needs to be cleansed, then you're not saved. But if you are saved, then you don't need that full cleansing all over again. You're saved. And I'll take care of the outline sin. I'll take care of that. I'll prune you. Jesus says, abide in me because you are clean. Don't abide in me in order to get clean. Don't abide in me in order to be pruned. Abide in me because you are pruned, because you are faithful. This, this sounds like Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, cast out the old leaven. Cast out, do the work to get rid of the bad stuff. Why? Why, Paul? Because you are unleavened. Don't cast out the old leaven to get to be unleavened, to get to be clean. Cast out the bad things because you're already clean. This is not works-based righteousness. Cast out what's bad because I've already cleaned you. That's Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. So I'm pressing on, not because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my salvation. I'm, I'm not pressing on because I'm afraid somehow God's going to not love me if I don't do that. I'm pressing on because I know I have God's love forever. So Jesus says, 
to Peter in John 13. If you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. And I think the parallel here in John 15, the willingness in your life to be pruned is proof that you're already clean. Are you loving? Are you wanting to be pruned? Are you wanting to be cut back so that Christ's glory could be seen in you? The opposite of that is the person that says, well, I'm in Christ. I'm clean. I'm already clean because of the word. I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I don't fear judgment. So I don't need to be cleaned. I don't need to be pruned. I don't want to be discipled. I don't want to be disciplined. I don't want any of that. I'm already in Christ. Jesus would say, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. You're not truly saved. So what is abiding? Verse 4, we have our, our motivation. Our motivation to abide is not ultimately because of the fear of judgment. Yes, this verse is very clear. These verses are clear. If you don't abide, you're going to be burned. But the greater motivation is abide because you're already cleaned. I already cleansed you. I already did the work for you so you can abide in me. So what does it mean to abide? A couple more clues. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says, I want my joy to be yours. This is such an amazing promise. This is not Jesus saying, I want you to be happy. I want you to have happiness. I want you to have joy. Jesus says, I want you to be as joyful as I am. I want you to have my joy. I want you to experience the joy that I experience. And what kind of joy does Jesus experience? Infinite joy. Infinite delight. So Jesus says, if you abide in me and I in you, you're going to have the same joy that I have. Don't try and get joy by being disconnected from me. Don't disconnect from me and go to something else. If you go to something else and connect to something else to find joy and satisfaction, it won't work. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. There'll be broken cisterns that hold no water. You're forsaking the fountain of living water. You need to be abiding in me. But if you abide in me, then my joy is your joy. If you abide in me, verse 12, my love is your love. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So these are clues for what abiding looks like. If you abide in Jesus, his joy is your joy, supernatural. If you abide in Jesus, his love is your love. His peace is your peace. Verse 5, if you don't abide in him, you can't bear any fruit. That's you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't bear any fruit. But if you do abide in me, verse 7, then you can ask whatever you want to gain more fruit, to bear more fruit, and my Father will make it happen. You can ask the vine dresser, and at whatever cost to you, you want to bear more fruit, he'll make that happen. So these are all clues as to a definition for abiding. What does it mean, what does it mean to abide? Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. It means to keep on enjoying being loved by Jesus and finding your joy in him. This is what it means to abide. To abide in Jesus is to keep on enjoying his love for you and finding your greatest joy in him. It's to live in his presence. It's to draw life from him so that your fruit looks like fruit that was born because of his life. So that people say you had Christ-like attitudes and actions that are not possible unless you are attached to another source. These are alien fruits. They can't be fruit coming from you. Abiding in the vine is being satisfied by Jesus 
above all things in this world, saying, I'm going to you to be connected to you, to drink deeply from you. And therefore, as I draw from you, it will look like I'm drawing from you. It will produce, abide. But we're not done yet. We need to go to one last thing. Abide in me, verse 4. Who's me? That's Jesus, back in verse 1. He is the true vine. Why true? I am the true vine. Well, there are defective vines. There are defective false vines, and there is the one true vine. There are other places. What that is telling me is there are other places that you can try to be satisfied, try to enjoy this life. There are other places that you can seek to find your source of satisfaction. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm the only vine that can actually give you life. John 14, verse 6, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But I think it's a little bit deeper than that. In the Old Testament, and again, we will go to all these verses in the fall. In the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the vine. Israel is a defective vine. Every time you see Israel being referred to as a vine in the Old Testament, it's always, you are the vine that should have borne fruit, but you failed. You're going to be judged. You're going to be cut off. So throughout the entire Old Testament, the imagery of the vine was Israel. And it's always used negatively. You didn't bear the fruit that you were supposed to bear. So vine equals judgment. When Jesus says, I'm the true vine, listen to what he's saying. I am doing what you cannot do. I am being what you cannot be. I will produce what you cannot produce. The fruitlessness that gets you cut off. You have done that by yourself to be judged, but guess what? The fruitfulness that pleases the Lord that you can't bear by yourself, I can make it possible. I'm the source that can make that fruit bearing possible. Since Jesus is the vine and he is what we cannot ever be, then he alone is our access to the Father. Abide in him to gain access to the Father. And this this changes our paradigm of what it means to abide. Uh, typically, if we think that we've offended somebody, we tend to avoid them, right? We know this is true experientially. We tend to avoid people that we think we have offended. Just all the way back to the Garden of Eden, they know they've sinned. Adam and Eve say we've sinned. What do they do? They hide themselves from the presence of God. We tend to avoid. We tend to hide. So those of you with kids, you know this. When I, when I come home after a long day at work, And I open the front door. If all of my kids come running to me saying, Daddy, Daddy, I know. Pretty good day. If just Chelsea comes running, Daddy, Daddy, and I see Ethan in the playroom in the corner and he just kind of has that look, I know that he probably got that talk from Mommy that just wait until your dad gets home. He avoids me. But here, Jesus says, look, I am bearing the fruit that you can't bear. I will do what you can't do. I will be your access to the Father. Therefore, you can run to me. Don't avoid me. Don't avoid God. You can run to me and abide in me. You need to do that. It's interesting, just looking at the life of Peter, I think Peter gets this. In just a couple hours, he's going to deny Jesus three times. And Jesus will die. He'll be raised from the dead. And at the end of John, we're going to see Peter again. And what does Peter do the very first time that he sees Jesus? He's on a boat, he's fishing, and he thinks, who is that guy? And then he realizes when Jesus performs the miracle of the fish, he realizes that's Jesus. And what does he do? The disciples say, oh, it's Jesus. Let's row back over. And he says, nope, I need to see him now. 
And he jumps into the water and swims to be with his Savior. The, one, the last thing that he saw before Jesus died was, was Jesus looking at him, Peter weeping as he had denied him three times. And yet he knows, oh, I can run to abide in him. I'm not going to be condemned. I'm already clean. I'm not going to be condemned. We are welcomed by a holy God to abide, to dwell, to remain, not on the basis of our works, on the basis of Jesus' work. Christ is what we could never be. So often we turn to our own righteousness. Let's think about our own righteousness for a second. Our best righteousness, this is what our best righteousness is, that I'm better than someone else. That's our best righteousness. I don't curse like my uh, co-worker. I don't have a bad attitude like my friend does. That's Our best righteousness is just comparing ourselves to others and saying, I'm better than they are. That in and of itself is a little bit of pride, so that's not very righteous. But this is not righteousness at all. If you're just a little bit better than your friend, that's not a win for anyone. That does not get you acceptance before a holy God to say, oh, I'm doing good because I'm better than so-and-so. Before a holy God, you need holiness to stand faultless, as we sang, before his throne. How do we get that? We have to be cleaned. We have to be clean. We have to be cleansed by the Father through the work of the Savior. And once we understand that it's his doing, it's his works, it's his righteousness that bring us a right standing before God, that will motivate us to go back to him. That will motivate us to to abide in him, to cling to him. So how do we wrap this up? Just thematically, we've looked at three things. We have fruitless branches that are cut off. We have fruitful branches that are pruned. And we have what abiding in the vine looks like. What it looks like to abide and who this vine is and why we would ever want to abide in him. So let's just take those three points and make some notes on them as we conclude. Fruitless branches. Conclusion point number one, fruit bearing is proof of genuine Christianity. You just can't get around that in the Bible. James chapter two, verse 26, faith without works is dead. So I think the right question to ask is, what kind of branch are you? You're obviously a branch because you are here. You are sitting under the the teaching and preaching of God's word. You're obviously a branch. The question is, what kind of a branch are you? Are you a true branch or are you a fake branch? You go to the Ten Commandments. Are you taking the Lord's name in vain? Taking is, that's not a reference to using his name as a, a curse word. Taking literally means to wear. Are you wearing his name in vain? Are you saying, I'm a Christian, and yet nothing in your life changes? Where is your fruit? Do you look good on the outside, but on the inside you're the whitewashed tomb that Jesus talks about? You're dead men's bones? Or if I were to use that analogy, I would say you're like that chocolate bunny at Easter. You guys ever gotten that chocolate bunny at Easter? I'm a a chocolate fanatic and I get this chocolate bunny and it just looks like this solid hunk of just amazing chocolate. And I'm just going to enjoy this probably in the span of two minutes. I'm going to eat it as fast as I can and savor it so that none of my children get a little bit of it. And when you take your first bite, I usually start on the ears. When you take your first bite into this chocolate bunny... You guys had this moment, you bite it and you look and the chocolate is about this thin and there's this huge gap of air going throughout the body of this chocolate bunny. And you realize I've been lied to. I can't trust anybody anymore. On the outside, I look like I had something so valuable and so precious. And on the inside, 
nothing. Are you a whitewashed tomb? Where is your fruit? Here's the bottom line. I don't want anyone in this room to get to the judgment and hear God say, I never knew you. All the things that you thought were good works, that was on your own strength. You didn't love me. You didn't produce those because you loved me or you knew that I loved you. I don't want anybody in this room to get there. So if you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand, I think, I think I'm a fruitful branch, but I'm not sure. Number one, I would say, hang on, pray over the summer, and, and we're going to come back and we're going to examine ourselves in September in these verses again, anew, afresh, and deeper. But number two, don't just bolt out of here when the service is done. Lunch can wait. Your eternal destiny is way more important than the food you're about to eat. So talk to somebody, talk to myself, talk to Tim, talk to somebody that you know, that you trust, that can help encourage your heart and show you the truth of God's word. Number two, fruitful branches. Jesus says, I am what you cannot be, but I'm not leaving you that way. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to grow you. And yes, growing takes effort. Growing is painful. But the pruning that God does in our lives is really quite good. We are becoming like the one that we love the most. We want to be like him. And the pruning is just conforming us to the image of Jesus. So do you submit to the knife of God's word? Do you see evidence? Can you see evidence of God pruning you in your life? Again, that's, that's one of the, the biggest assurances of my salvation is that I see God pruning. I don't get away with much of anything. And, and God totally takes those things and prunes them, cuts them off and says, you can't do that. This is the, this is the likeness of Christ. Let's, let's look like that. Maybe you are in a season of pruning right now. Can I plead with you, don't kick against it. If you kick against it, you won't grow the way God's designed you to grow. Embrace the season of pruning that God has you in. Embrace the word of God in the trials and the conflict and the troubles. Embrace it. Go deeper. See where you need to grow. And let God cut you back. Cut those areas, burning away the dross so that you can grow. Finally, abiding. Abiding. What are you going to do this summer to abide in Christ? How are you going to fight to abide? How, you, how will you grow closer to Jesus this summer? How will you grow in your fruit bearing? We say it here often at CBC, but can I just plead with you again this morning? Fill your life with things that stir your affections for Jesus. You have to do the work of finding out what stirs my affections for Jesus and what robs my affections for Jesus. What are those things in my life? What stirs my affection for him? What robs my affections for him? For every believer, that's the word of God, prayer, and fellowship. The Bible clearly teaches the word of God, prayer, and fellowship will stir and grow your affections for Jesus. But outside of that, there's other things. There's other things. Being with friends and um, reading good books that bring us back to the character of God. And there, there are many things in this life that can absolutely stir your affections for Jesus. Find out what that is and give yourself to those things. Be honest with yourself about what can rob your affections for Christ. What can, we're not talking sin here. We're talking Hebrews chapter 12. God will cut away the sin. And he's asking us to throw away the sin. 
and also any weight that entangles us or that encumbers us. So good things that become bad things when they become God things in our lives. Cut those things out. Cut out of your life anything that robs you of the affections that you have for Jesus. And by the way, this passage tells us, if you don't cut them out, Jesus will. Jesus will. Does your life bear true fruit? We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about progression. What's the point of all of this? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. These works are all about the glory of God. None of this is about us. We can look so internally. This is all about the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, your fruit, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God, we pray that you would be glorified by our fruit bearing, not because of anything that we can do. Yes, we give effort, but you are the one who prunes. You are the one who works. You are the vine that gives us the ability to grow in the first place. And so, Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning to abide in you. We have been made clean. We've been pruned. We've been called fruitful and faithful, not because of anything that we can do, but because of your amazing love. And so I pray that we would run to you, not run from you. We would find our greatest joy in you. And that we would be able to say with all of our heart, praise the Lord, I have Jesus. He is the vine that I cling to and all I need is him. All for your glory, we pray in your name. Amen.